welcome to The Full English, the podcast that looks at Englishness through the lens of food. It might feel like a long time ago now, or it might be something that we just want to forget, but fishing rights were one of the key symbolic features of the campaign to leave the European Union. And the effects of that vote are still working themselves out in British politics today. To some extent, these changes are happening under the radar, and that's probably because of some of the exhaustion that we've all felt around Brexit, and also because the policy process is frequently technical and complex. But, like it or not, post-Brexit fishing policy will affect us all, from the sustainability of eating seafood to the health of our coastal communities. That's why I'm speaking to Jerry Percy. Jerry was a commercial skipper on fishing boats, both big and small. He's been a key member of various industry bodies and is presently the director of the new Under-10s Fishermen's Association. He's also a fantastic beekeeper, but that's another story. The focus in this interview is mainly on leaving the EU. We talk a bit about overfishing from the perspective of there being smaller, more sustainable boats and much larger trawlers. We don't really get into the questions of declining fish stocks, nor why the English eat such a tiny variety of many imported fish. These are definitely fascinating questions that hopefully I can get into elsewhere in future. For now, I'm going to leave you with Jerry. I learned a lot making this episode, and so if you did too, please, as always, help the show by giving it a share. The audience for The Full English is going from strength to strength, and that's really down to your support. So thank you so much for that. I'm Lewis Bassett. Mixing and sound design is from Forest DLG. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on The Full English. Um, let's start with a bit of background about you. I really want to know when you became a fisherman and, <laughs> and, and, and why. <laughs> Back when the earth was young. Um, your listeners won't realise just how ancient I am. But yes, about, oh, hang on, I'm going to work this out now. About 48 years ago, God, I, um, I went on holiday to Hebrides. A friend of mine was working on a farm up there. And um, I went up for a holiday and the guy that had the farm had a couple of reasonably sized lobster boats. And to cut a long story short, I was invited out for a day trip and it was a, they'd had a bit of a storm previously and they had big seas, you know, Atlantic rollers rolling in, massive seas. And I spent the entire day hanging onto the smokestack of this boat as it rolled through sort of 60 degrees with all the pots and the fishermen sliding from one side to the other. And I came back and uh, the guy asked me if I wanted a job. I loved it, and that was that, really. So, because uh, yeah. it's it's well known for being one of the most dangerous or the most dangerous yeah. job that you can work in the UK, but you must really, really have loved it to to stick it out. It, it's very easy to sound. I don't know what the adjective would be, but you, overly you, romantic. Yeah, romanticize it, spiritualize it, but there is there is something you know about the sea. It is primal. Yeah. Fishermen are really the last hunters left. If you think about it, no one else actually, or very few people go out to actually hunt for a living. And there is all that. And it's, but I, I suppose the bottom line is that it is, you know, the sea, seven tenths of the planet, we mm. come from the sea, so on and so forth. It is that primal, really. It's that basic. And if you like, that's spiritual. And so you weren't originally from a fishing community. No, no, I was brought up in Sussex. But you found yourself eventually in the fishing community. Can you yeah. say a bit about what that was like to be part of this community that was centred so much on the sea? It is, yeah, it's interesting and it varies. So I fished English Channel, Irish Sea, North Sea, Scotland, 
west of Ireland. Um, I fished all around in, in most sorts, not all sorts of gear, but most mm. forms of gear in boats from five metres to 26 metres, I think, 27 metres. When fishermen say the term gear, they mean that's the equipment you yeah, use to sorry, catch fish. Yeah, fishing gear, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a whole vast range of different sorts of gear people yeah. sometimes don't realise. You've got the big sectors of mobile gears, trawls and dredges, yeah. and passive gears, pots, nets and lines, long lines, yeah, with hooks. Mm-hmm. Um most majority of my fishing has been in passive gear side. Longlining mm-hmm. is my favourite. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt at all. Longlining is where you stick out a really long horizontal line in the sea, and off that are loads of yeah. vertical hooks. Baited hooks, yeah. 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 And then so you basically drop that into the sea, and then you come along a few hours later and see what's what's Exactly. But, and, and fishing communities differ, um, but there is this sort of, community is a good word for it, really, because mm. um, everyone's facing the same challenges, clearly, as you said. You know, it's the most dangerous job in the world, and our mortality rate and injury rate is still far too high. Mm. But it's also quite a close-knit thing, largely, I think, because you tend to go to sea when everyone else is still in bed. Right. And you come back when they're all in bed. Um so it's a very close knit in that respect, and, yeah. and I think that that contributes to the lack of comprehension, understanding of what the job is about and what it entails. People, oh, there's, there's things on the TV these days that you can watch, but yes, so there is this sort of very close knit um, yeah. community wherever you go, and not just among the crew of, a, of the boat, but also in the wider community among those people. Well, it was. And, you know, we are a declining industry in many respects, and in many areas around the coast you had close-knit communities. Mm. And you needed those because the men were away at sea um, and the women... It sounds It's not supposed to sound sexist at all. This was how it was. Mm. I make no apology for that. But there was this close-knit community of wives and mothers and sisters and daughters that were sustained themselves while the men were away at sea and sometimes didn't come back. And that mm. meant that everyone had to pull together for financially and emotionally and, and everything else. So that generated this very, very close community. Unfortunately, of course, coastal properties, the cost of the price of them has gone through the roof. Yeah. And what's happened is that this has driven these communities apart and they're having to live further and further away from the harbour or, or, or the beach or wherever they're, that they're fishing from. And that's been devastating, really. Mm. Uh, I think it's one of the major social changes as far as fishing is concerned because, you know, there's all first, second homes, third homes and tourists and dead villages, you know. It's not just on the coast. Of course, we know very well that happens inland as well. Mm. But, yeah, overall, I think that's that's had a very significant negative impact. And I suppose over your lifetime, you said it's a declining industry. You, you Over your lifetime, you've kind of, you must have entered uh, the industry almost at its boom point. Um, and then you've kind of seen that decline. What's the kind of broad brushstroke explanation for for that decline? I'm trying to keep this sort of fairly straightforward because it, it, fisheries can get very complex very quickly. Mm. So fishing, the fishing industry is not the fishing industry. There's large scale and there's small scale. Now, I, I'm director of um, the new Under 10 Fishermen's Association, which is the specific representative body for the vessels of 10 metres and under. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got a larger scale sector, um, which is over 10 metres. Now, in the UK, uh, 79% of the fleet by number are small boats under mm-hmm. 10 metres. Mm-hmm. Um, so four out of every five boats. But at the same time, we have only access to about 3% 
of the national quota, the fishing opportunities. Um, and this is largely because we weren't in the room when they were they were shared out. There's a whole backstory to that. So um, we represent that small scale sector. Um, and there are, if you talk to some of the large scale guys at the moment, they do very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and some not so well. Costs are going through the roof, fuel, price of quota. You have to lease and buy quota to be able to fish. So their costs are going up. Um, so it's it's a mixed batch, but generally, I mean, we've lost 500 fishermen in in the last year, 18 months. I don't mean lost physically, but people have got out of the industry or mm. retired or just given up because it's it's such a struggle. From an inshore perspective, if we were having this conversation five or six years ago, I would be saying to you that the most common phone calls to our office were about the lack of quota, mm-hmm. and lack of access to fish. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, from an inshore perspective, it's about no fish on the ground. Right. Simple as that. You know, from northeast round, there's still patches. You know, if you, the southwest is still probably the most bountiful area for fishing there is in the country, excluding Scotland. But certainly east, west coast, channel, for a whole range of reasons. But there's very, very little fish on the ground. Yeah. Inshore fishing, that's fishing closer to the shore. And then what's the opposite of that? Well, offshore or deep sea. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's a bit like small scale. Yeah. How do you define small scale? Um, we have this arbitrary length thing in the UK of 10 metres, but it is arbitrary. And it doesn't really mean very much in this day and age for, for reasons I won't bore you with. But they're small scale, they're smaller boats. They, they tend to do day trips, you know, not, to, not more than sort of 24 hours at the most. Usually skipper owned, skipper on the boat, uh, a couple of crew. You know, it's a, it's a sort of that small scale fleet that you'll see around the little harbours and beaches and, and coves in the UK. Whereas the larger vessels... Um, which legally are over 10 metres, but in fact, you know, you'd say are over, I don't know, 15 metres perhaps or whatever. Um, they fish further off, they fish longer, yep. longer trips, you know, for three, four, five days sometimes. And they use different gear? Um, generally speaking, um, <clears throat> the majority of larger vessels work mobile gears, that's trawls and dredges. Mm-hmm. Um the inshore sector, the under 10s, 80% of them use passive gears, pots, mm. nets and lines, and the majority of them fish for shellfish. Um, and again, that's not only because it's, it's, it's there and it's convenient, it's good price, etc., but it's also because they have this limited access to quota. Right. Um, but you've got big and small. And I'm not for one moment suggesting that all small is beautiful mm-hmm. and all big is bad. I can give you examples of the opposite of both. Um, but generally speaking, I, re- I, I represent the inshore sector. I've always fished, more mainly fished in the inshore sector. And we have a particular set of challenges that we need to overcome in the years to come. We're going to come on to lots of the things you just touched on there. But I, just, I was just thinking, I mean, I said this to you just before we start recording, that as, speaking as a chef and speaking as someone who's you know fascinated by food, I think there's a really big awareness of large production in terms of farms and animals and smaller producers, um, again, in terms of farms and animals, but we don't really have the same awareness when it comes to fishing. And it seems so important, at least from your perspective. Oh, it's a a brilliant analogy, to be honest, Lewis. It it really is. Um, And I think the main difference is, well, two differences, really. Farming has hugely more political clout than we do. And to a large extent, we're invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you drive around the countryside, you see farmers, you get stuck buying tractors, you know, you, most of the food in a, in a supermarket is, is 
produced by farmers. Um, whereas we're out at sea, we go before you get up, we come back after you've gone to bed. You know, we're an invisible sector, really. And, and I think for that and other reasons, people don't really comprehend the detail. I want to start by talking a bit about how fishing has been managed, but how it was managed initially within the EU. Obviously, we've left the EU. I want to talk about how, how fishing was managed when we were in the EU. Could, could you explain that? Well, the short answer in terms of was it managed? No, it wasn't. Um, the common fishery policy, depending on your level of churlishness, you could give, you could suggest that um, from a government perspective, common fishery policy was a get-out-of-jail-free card because mm. you could always blame Brussels. Uh, and to an extent, that was true, that um, everything had to go through uh, Brussels to get agreed. And we, we wrote letters and letters and letters to DEFRA, the government, to Brussels about the need for more intensive management um, or more focused management. And it was largely ignored, really. Mm. A good, an example was, for instance, that if you wanted to bring in, if the UK, for instance, wanted to bring in a regulation mm -hmm. that impacted on the European vessels that were fishing in our waters, the common fishery policy said you had to confer with the member states that may be affected. Mm -hmm. Now, we interpreted that to be get their agreement. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the maritime equivalent of asking Turkeys to vote for Christmas, really. Um, and of course, they wouldn't. Um, their, their only interest was keeping their boats fishing. So there was a sort of a everything ground to a halt, or very largely ground to a halt in management terms. And, it, and because someone once said to me, the problem we have is that we've got a couple of hundred bureaucrats sitting in Brussels working on fishery regulation and a few thousand fishermen at sea finding ways <laughs> going around them. So, and I don't think that was particularly incorrect, to be fair. But, um, but the general idea was that the EU managed its waters as a common policy. Yes, equal and, access to a common resource. And, and so it divided up quota between nations and then those nations were, were left to divide it up within the nation itself. Very well put, really, yes, in a nutshell. So on an annual basis based on and largely ignoring scientific advice very often, there would be what they call a total allowable catch for every species of fish in every sea area. So it's going to mm -hmm. subdivide it into blocks. Um, so they decide on the total allowable catch, and then they look at a table about which nations um, had what percentage of that total allowable catch on an annual basis. So we were given, say, 30% of North Sea cod. It's not the right figure, but just for argument's sake. Mm -hmm. And then within that 30%, our government would then share that out based on something called fixed quota allocations. So each individual boat had a quota, um, and it was a possession. They owned it. Unless you were under 10 metres. If you were 10 metres or under, you didn't have, weren't allowed to hold your individual quota. So we fished from a national pool of quota, which is this 2.5-3% that I mentioned previously. And the problem we had and still have is that the FQA, the fixed quota allocation process, which awards 97 plus percent to the over 10 metre fleet, is based, frankly, on, on uh, falsified data in mm -hmm. the 90s. Uh, and I can substantiate that because the largest scale representative said it in open court. <laughs> yes, we, we, so it was a stupid thing. The government said to the largest scale fleet, go away, catch your fish, record it for three years, um, and then we'll give you the average of those three years catches as your own personal allocation. Mm -hmm. um, now, that actual allocation can go up and down depending on how much TAC, total allowable catch, there is in any given year, but that is effectively set in stone. 
And that's been one of our major arguments, that that is grossly unfair. Mm -hmm. The reason it was set like that is because there was no smaller scale representatives in the room when it was all sorted out. So, you know, uh, people were were left to make their own rules, if you like, in the large scale sector, which is very beneficial for them, but not helpful for for the small scale guys. So the general principle was if you caught a lot in the past, you're going to be allowed to catch a lot in the future. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Brussels was giving the nation its amount of fishing and then the nation was giving its individual fishermen its yeah. rights to fishing. Yeah. Why then did so many fishermen blame Brussels for, for all of their problems? Well, mainly because, and it, history has shown it to be true, when we acceded to the common market, it was under Edward Heath's um, prime ministership and it became very clear that they had not given any thought to fishing at all until a few days before they were due to sign the treaty. Mm-hmm. And there was a conversation in Downing Street when someone said to Heath, oh, good Lord, we haven't thought about fishing. And Heath said something along the lines of, ah, not worrying, chuck it in the pond, so to speak. Now, that was tragic. And we've we've suffered from that attitude for decades until we came out of Europe. And then we were... <laughs> screwed yet again by another prime minister of a Tory party called Boris Johnson, who effectively did the same thing and gave it all away again. I mean, the deal we've got with with Brexit for fishing is, we'll probably get on to this. I mean, we were the poster boy for Brexit and we got universally and royally screwed. Um, So coming back to the common fishery policy, yes, um, Brussels and France, Spain, even Ireland, Belgium, especially recognise the intrinsic and long-term value of fish stocks mm-hmm. and access to them, um, whereas we didn't. Uh, and, of course, they fought and won a very good number of concessions, which is why so many uh, European vessels, nearly 1,800 vessels, have still got open access to our waters, even yes. post-Brexit. You're saying we got a bad deal when the UK entered the EU um, yeah. or the EEC, um, what, what, in what way? Just like we didn't get enough um, quota? No, because it's based on equal access to a common resource. That's the phrase. Yeah. So yeah. instead of having UK waters that we could protect and manage and look after, it just got chucked into this sort of European-wide pond of, of fish. And of course, the EU com- countries rubbed their hands with joy. Mm. They managed to argue that they had, they had historic rights of access to our waters. And because nobody had really managed or measured it very well, we weren't really in a position to argue. The, the general principle that, that you seem to be saying is that we gave up, Britain yeah. gave up control of our waters. And the European nations would say, well, hold on a second, we've been fishing in the North Sea for hundreds, yeah. thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, surely they're right. I mean, the UK, I don't, you know, we're going back to a really old argument here, but I'm interested in the principle because it will make sense when we talk about fishermen's attitudes towards Brexit. Mm. But surely, you know, the UK was fishing around the world and doing much else besides for a really long time. Well, no, in terms of fishing, certainly in European waters, we weren't. Mm -hmm. And we're still not. Um, So there's no doubt there's justification for a lot of these European vessels um, to say, yes, we were fishing in in English waters, mainly because we weren't taking a great deal of notice. At that Mm -hmm. time, we had a small and fairly insignificant small-scale fleet, and we had a very large deep-water fleet Mm. that was fishing Norway and Iceland. And, of course, you had the uh, Icelandic Cod Wars, Mm -hmm. where, you know, Iceland recognised that we were fishing their grounds too heavily, uh, and they, in the end, kicked us out to 200 miles. 
Um, and we objected to it, and there was all the nonsense about cobbles and the Navy involved. But, you know, quite rightly, because we would have done the same, we got kicked out of Iceland. Um, so we had this great big deep-sea fleet, which was no longer anywhere to fish, um, and this small fleet. So by the time we started to concentrate on what you'd call near-water grounds and middle-water grounds, you know, the Europeans had been fishing there for ages. Um, but the, the common fishery policy really cemented that policy mm. and provided this equal access. So it gave access to everybody, irrespective of historic rights or otherwise, you know, because it was, it was one pond. Mm-hmm. It was no longer UK waters. And so British fishermen resented that at the time and, and thereafter. And that, and that kind of explains, I guess it explains on the one hand, why so many fishermen were pro-Brexit, pro-leaving the European Union. And it might explain on the other hand, why fishing was so symbolic for that campaign because it's this sense of control taking back control not having control over our borders not having control over our seas as they said it was a, we were going to become a take back control was the phrase that they used and we were going to become an independent coastal state and um and unicorns were going to come over the hill with saddlebags full of fish quota for us, you know, from these pesky Europeans. And, of course, none of it happened. As an aside, and I did make a note of this earlier, the EU catch in UK territorial waters, even now, is 739,000 tonnes a year. And our catch in EU waters is 94,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a factor of eight or whatever it is there. So it's still the case that we have this massive imbalance because we have got some of the richest fishing grounds in Europe. You seem to be making the case for the fact that British fishermen should have access or or almost um, exclusive access maybe or much more control over access to British waters. Yeah. But at the same time, I get the impression that you weren't a Leave voter. Is that correct? No, no, no. I, I, I voted for Remain. Not because of the fishing particularly, but more about the sort of wider uk situation and as unfortunately and tragically it's come to pass Mm. you know brexit has done untold damage um on a on a national basis on a personal basis you know my youngest daughter's an astrophysicist she was going to go and work for the european space agency she was almost offered a job there Mm -hmm. and then boom you know no more movement um people movement between them between the UK and the EU, jobbing out the window. Um, but that, you know, it's just a very tiny, tiny example of the huge impact that's had on that. From a fisheries perspective, so we get told time and time again, well, you voted for it, live with it. Mm-hmm. You've got to look at that in the context that fishermen felt quite rightly that we were cheated when UK joined the European Union. So there was this lingering anger and disappointment because we did lose out and we lost out very significantly across the board as I hope I've explained. So then along comes Brexit with all the lies that were told and you know we know very well all the lies that were told from Farage and Johnson and all the other I'm minding my language here <laughs> um, people um, and fishermen were told unequivocally I was in meetings with government ministers um, secretaries of state who looked you in the eye and said this is going to be great there is no downside you're going to have more quota you're going to be an independent coastal state we're going to take back control mm-hmm. you know, what industry is not going to love that yeah the fact that it turned out to be a pack of lies um is really, really I mean, the whole country was conned you know, so you can't blame fishermen who had a particular chip on their shoulder in terms of the european 
ideal. Um, and yes, the vast majority of, of fishermen voted for Brexit on the promises of all these things. And of course, also, and it's human nature really, that if the vast majority of folk um, are saying one thing, it's the emperor's new clothes. Mm. Who's going to have the courage to put their head above the parapet and not get it bitten off, you know, because it was, this is wonderful. Don't rock the boat. This is going to be great. We're going to get our waters back and all our fish. Very few people stood up and said, well, hang on a minute. The emperor's got no clothes on. In what ways have we not got back control? Or in what ways, uh, what's changed? Has, has anything improved uh, as a result of Brexit, well, or has it got worse? We've got the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, which covers every aspect of the UK economy and business and everything else. And the fisheries part of it is basically the status quo. So in the end, after six years, it gets reviewed in 2025 or six, we are supposed to end up with 25% more quota from the European pot than we had pre-Brexit. In reality, and people far cleverer than me have done studies on this, we've actually lost out um, by some millions of pounds in terms of fish. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a bit more um, mackerel, a bit more herring, etc. although the stocks are in some ways struggling for various reasons. But the overall fact really is that we are worse off. We've got less access um, but vitally, we've got less access to markets. You know, you'll, you'll be aware, most of your listeners, I'm sure, will be aware of the challenges in trying to export into, mm. into Europe. You know, the costs, the delays have been vast. You know, it's, it's uh, any number of fish processors, along with every other exporter in any other business in this country, says that the costs outweigh any particular benefits. Obviously, we deal in fresh fish for the majority of the time and shellfish. Mm. And, you know, it should be sort of next day delivery into Europe. And it was. There was one piece of paper, which was simple and straightforward. Put it on a lorry. Off it went. And it boom, 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 delivered. No delays. Straight onto the ferries. Straight off the ferries the other side. And away you go. Now, you've got hundreds of bits of paper. Everything has to be checked by health officials. Has to be signed off. Every individual boat has to have a bit of paper. And it has to have various codes and numbers. And it's just a flipping nightmare. Mm. And instead of next day now, it's next two days or three days. The whole system really, I don't say it's fallen to bits, but it's become far more onerous, far more delays and far more expensive. Because this is the key contradiction, right, from the perspective of someone who wants to leave the EU, but also is a fisher, fisherman, uh, which is that most of the catch in British waters by British fishermen is exported to European markets, right? Yeah. And so in terms of um, those delays and also in terms of the negotiations for more catch, like the EU always have the card of, um, well, you want access to our markets, so, you know, we're, yeah. we're kind of ever about, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we, we run a, a trade deficit in fish and shellfish globally of £1.7 billion pounds a year. Right. So in general terms, we export something like 70% of what we catch and we import something like 80% of what we eat. Mm -hmm. You know, which is... That, yeah, that is kind of, that's, that's kind of amazing. It's perverse, isn't it? Um, what is the current state of post-Brexit policy as it relates to fishing? I'll let you know. <laughs> it's the short answer. So we've got the, the new Fisheries Act. So coming out of common fishery policy, coming out of Europe, um, we had to have our own act to say what we were going to do and how we can do it. So it's Fishery Act 2020. Mm -hmm. And on the face of it, it's great. You know, it's, it's lovely. It's, it starts off with a number of objectives, sustainability objectives, the precautionary, the ecosystem, the scientific evidence, the precautionary principle. Um, 
the bycatch, equal access, oh, all sorts, national benefits. So it's motherhood and apple pie, mm-hmm. you know. And if you read the detail, and I won't bore you with it, but it's great. You know, this is this is really going to revolutionise. It's not an evolution. It's a revolution in terms of, of moving things forward. An integral part of it is the development of fishery management plans. Mm-hmm. And this is a plan for every individual species to develop it. Um Focus initially on non-quota species. Most of the quota species, cod, haddock, stuff, they've got management in place, although it can be improved. So fishery management plans are the one thing in the Fisheries Act that is ostensibly going to revolutionise it all. It's going to bring it back in. It's going to do everything it needs to do. We're going to have specific management plans. It's going to recognise where we need to improve things. There is, I think, an inherent danger that the the medicine is going to kill the patient at the moment because stocks in some places are at such a low ebb. But it's what we've got, and we have to put up with it. Um, I could churlishly argue that it's too little too late, but it's what we've got, mm-hmm. so we've got to make the best of it. But it's, So it's already been around for a couple of years. What impact has this policy It hasn't. Had? They're still developing it. I um, see. The new ones are supposed to... The, the front-runner species, don't ask me to list them, um, they're supposed to be the management plans are supposed to be launched this year okay and then they follow all the other ones follow in the next couple of years we have to report on all this in 2026 so my job is to keep defro the government's feet to the fire and be a pain in their backside about just do it get on with it this is vital you know we're already god knows how many times i've used this phrase at last chance saloon we've got so many especially smaller scale guys hanging on by their fingertips and falling down losing it you know as i say we've lost hundreds of fishermen in the last year or so you know so it's whether it'll be in time is it's all we can do is is hope that it is but the fundamental thing about how quotas are allocated that's still in place as it was when we were in the EU. and <laughs> and funny you should mention that so Without getting technical, Section 25 of the Fisheries Act 2020 says that we shall include, we must include social, economic and environmental criteria when allocating access to the resource quota. My argument is that we haven't done that in the past. It's been done on a historic basis. As I said, back in the 90s, it was all set. You know, what you had last year, you'll have this year. Um, and there's a whole subset of that discussion, which we'll leave for another time so section 25 now says no no hang on you've got to use social environmental and and economic criteria so um defra says yeah that's it it's in the act that's what it says unequivocally black and white that's what it says and then defra said last year in a in a in a presentation oh but that only counts for new quota because this was all developed when we were going to get these aforementioned unicorns coming over the hill full of saddlebags full of quota, which didn't happen, of course. So we went away and got very high-level legal opinion that says if they wanted the Act to say this was only for new quota, the Act has to say this is for any new quota and everything else gets done by the FK. So we're in the middle of that argument, discussion, Mm -hmm. debate at the moment. But my concern is that this is the status quo. Mm -hmm. And there's very few people want anything other than the status quo with all due respect civil servants like the status quo we've been the status quo for decades you know uh, we want change we need change the fish need change the consumer needs change the fishermen need change and so it is really only if the fisheries act does what it says on the tin and it says a lot on the tin although as i've just explained the interpretation of those writings on the tin mm. uh, is at some variance depending on who you talk to but this is our last 
possible opportunity to really regenerate, reinvigorate the coastal communities and the fisheries and fishermen that support them. And practically, beyond the nice warm words of, of this act, practically that would mean reallocating quota from some of the bigger fishing fleets to some of the inshore fleets. It's all about balance, absolutely. And that's where the social and economic moment comes in. At the moment, it's done on a historic basis. And because we weren't in the room, the big guys got 97% of it, Right. you know, which is ludicrous. Um, They will say, oh, yes, well, most small boats work on non-quota species anyway. Yes, that's true. But also, it's also true that a lot of those boats have to work on non-quota because they haven't got the quota. Uh, so although it is true it is also a fact that the fisheries act says we shall use include social and economic criteria and environmental criteria that ticks our boxes that's what we want and to clarify this could have happened while we were in the eu so it didn't well, actually take brexit to do this well no i don't think it could because the system as i mentioned earlier you had to get permission of other member states effectively before you did anything. Even um, internal allocation? Of, of well, not internal allocation. Because that's but, what we're talking about now, yeah, right? Yeah, but general access. So, yes, they could have done, should they so wish. Because even if we reallocate quota from some of the historic big boats to some of the smaller parts of the, parts of the smaller mm-hmm. fleet, that's not going to stop Spanish boats, Dutch boats, whatever, coming into, you know, British waters. No, but it's, 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 this, it's this change in approach to a more holistic approach and you 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 come down to fundamentals here Lewis you you have to think so who has the right to fish it's a public resource Mm -hmm. you know you don't own the fish nobody owns the fish in the sea you have the access to it but you're accessing a public resource and therefore the public have a right to know what you're doing how you're doing it what the impact is etc and where is the social and economic and environmental benefits of that activity Mm -hmm. and that's what the new fisheries act says that DEFRA should follow. And that, in turn, logically, it follows, therefore, that if you have um, a large-scale dredger fishing in the wrong area and doing significant damage, as an example, I'm mm. not picking on scallop dredges per se, but you know, mm. it's a good example, people understand. And then you have a small boat that has all those social, economic, and environmental benefits, coastal communities, blah, 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 who should get the quota? Where should the balance be? And my argument, and the argument ostensibly of the Fisheries Act, is that that smaller vessel, and even a bigger vessel that operates in that way, should get a better allocation than is currently the case. Yeah, I understand that. I'm just wondering, will this act have any impact on the rights of, let's say, big and and small French vessels to come and fish in the Channel or wherever else? Not at the moment. The Trade and Cooperation Agreement um, allows the continued access for European vessels uh, up to 1,800 vessels or something, uh, up until 2026, where there will be a review. Now, cynically, but I think tragically, depending on which government's in place and how strong we are, the problem with this is that the Trade and Cooperation Agreement is not just about fishing, it's not just about the city, it's not just about industry. Mm. It's, it's tied everything together. And Europe, under pressure from their fishing sectors, will undoubtedly say in 2026, when we want changes, when we want to have, move stuff and have more of their fish, although we're supposed to get 25% of it over the next five years, um, they will use economic clout. You know, if you try and take more quota of this or reduce our access, then we'll cut out your aviation or your city or, or some other thing. It's all tied together. Mm-hmm. And of course, we produce 0.03% of GDP as a fishing industry in this country, big and small. Mm-hmm. We're not exactly big potatoes, you yeah. know. And so, you know, we've got very little political clout compared with 
other industries and the city and everything else. So I'm not anticipating any massive revolutionary changes, but we still have this ability internally within the UK to rebalance the books without unnecessary. We're not talking about huge changes because a very small change in the large-scale operations or access or allocations makes a very big change internally. Why should we support the inshore fleet? I imagine here there there might be environmental reasons and there might also be social reasons. Well, social, economic and environmental. As I said previously, a lot of the larger vessels um, are owned and the quota is owned by foreign interests. They land abroad. You very rarely see some of this fish. Um, everything we know, the vast majority. The vast majority that we land is, is sold within the UK. Mm. And it's caught by smaller boats who, for the most part, yeah, they, they're day boats, you know. They'd have to work hard to spoil the fish they land, to be honest, because it's so fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think we do have that particular benefit. Most of our smaller boats are crewed locally, mm-hmm. um, which again is a benefit from a social and economic perspective in coastal communities. Tragically, and it's quite a complicated story, but there is greater and greater use of foreign crews on larger vessels there are some foreign crews on smaller vessels but it's you know it's exception rather than the rule mainly i think but because of the costs of um quota because of the costs of fuel etc any option that uh, an owner a skipper of a larger vessel can take to to reduce those costs they do and there's a quite a trade it used to be of course eastern block eu mm. people on our fishing boats um now of course post brexit it tends to be far eastern um folk that are on it and i have to admit i as a skipper i stood on the quay at three o'clock in the morning waiting for some idiot to drag himself out of bed so we can go to sea and it's very frustrating um nowadays a larger vessel you can import foreign crew you can pay them you don't need to pay them a share which is what traditionally was the was the payment you can just pay them a payment which tends to be in some cases very low um they're because of the rules they're not allowed ashore they have to live on the boat right um and these poor souls come over here you know quite right i've got nothing nothing at all against folk coming over here to improve their lot they come over here they work very hard they send their money home Mm -hmm. so that's great but it has no benefit to coastal communities here it also makes it more difficult if any of our local people wanted to get a job on a boat because the skipper has chosen to have this cheaper and frankly more submissive um, um, crews on, on, the, on the boat. And I can understand why. I get slightly irritated by large scale skippers sometimes shedding crocodile tears. Oh, we can't find local crews. No, because you know, local lads won't want to go on a boat if the language of the crew is not their first language. And as I said right at the outset, you know, because it's a team, it's a group, it's a community, mm. it's usually you and your pals on the boat on the deck. You know, if it's mainly foreign folk, then you don't really feel part of that. So from a social and economic perspective, smaller scale boats tend to provide more of those benefits to their coastal communities. They live there, they spend their money there. So with the inshore fleet, which tend to be smaller boats, um, I guess what you're saying is the quality is better, uh, the labour practices are better, and it's obviously much, it's far better for the local community. I'm also wondering about, is it better for the environment? Is it better for the problem of overfishing? Yes. And, um, and I think there's a, there's a range of answers to your question, really, Lewis, but... I think the the difference is, and I'm not going to damn everybody 
there's some great guys in larger vessels that are really responsible. Mm. But in general terms, if you've got a big boat and the fishing goes down in one area for whatever reason, you can steam away somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Go and find some fish somewhere else. If you've got a small boat, you don't have that option. So you inherently have to look after what you've got because you don't have an option to go anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> again, I'm not damning every European vessel, but we have a significant number. We've got particular issue in the in the in the English Channel at the moment with with Dutch fly sailors, and I won't bore your listeners with details of what it is, but they're very large, powerful vessels that have effectively almost no controls on them and no monitoring. Mm-hmm. Um, these these are the things that's also called fly shooters. Yeah, fly shooters. And they, or create, fly they kind of create these giant pens effectively in the yeah, sea, and then good pull everything in. Yeah, and then they just herd it all up and scoop it all up. So you've got this vast fleet of massively powerful vessels working ostensibly on historic rights. Right although they're using a different sort of gear with a different sort of boat for different sorts of species, but they've still got historic rights. And, you know, so it's that's the sort of issues we've got. Mm. And so if we had, I guess this all, again, comes back to local control at the national level, at the very much more local level. Yeah. And it's it's a kind of David Goliath story in a way. Well, it is to an extent. I mean, I think, as I said right at the outset, no, not all small is beautiful, not all big is bad, but... You know, the, the problem is if you put these massive vessels on these big shoals, it, it's, it reduces the resilience of these shoals. And, and because of climate change, we need all the resilience we can get in terms of fish stock. So it's, it's I suppose what we're hoping for in terms of management is that, you know, for the reasons I gave earlier, the common fishery policy failures, that we're going to take this much wider, this holistic view of not inshore, offshore, but the whole thing, so that we can regenerate fish stocks, so that we as inshore fishermen have got something to fish. Coming to the core of what we've been talking about, um, in terms of has Brexit been good for fishermen, for fishing communities, people that depend on fishing, the answer seems to me that potentially it was only because of Brexit that we got this new policy in the first place. So arguably it could be good for fishermen, but it's too early to tell. Is that a good summary? Well, I think the post-Brexit benefit is that we have our own shiny new Fisheries Act, mm-hmm. which on the face of it provides opportunities, a route to long-term economic and, and social sustainability and environmental sustainability in regards to the, the inshore fleet. It's as simple as that, yeah. And we have to believe that that will be the case, although it's going to be an uphill struggle. Um, undoubtedly... Brexit has had more negative than positive impacts on the fishing industry more generally. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt the bureaucracy, the costs, the slowness, the delays, the the continuing access. But a lot of that's to do with uh, us exporting fish to, to, to Europe. So, yeah, we can still import all this stuff. But as we said, we're an island. But, I mean, I can, can, could, you can conceive of a world in which our new Fisheries Act delivers everything that you wanted... Um, that is a direct consequence of leaving the EU. Yeah, British people start eating more fish. We don't yep. need to import as much, and we yep. don't need to export as much. If that scenario happened, you'd be pretty happy, right? Even though you voted to remain. From a fishery perspective, I'd be overjoyed. Yeah, because that's exactly what we need, and we can only do that with the support of consumers. So mm. eat more locally caught fish, folks. Um, <laughs> but um, on the widest brexit thing no of course the country's stuffed with it you know it's, it's just had so many negative and continues to have so many negative impacts and and that was one of the the contradictions i had i could see the benefits of of brexit or ostensibly the benefits of brexit um for fishing um but 
the broader picture in terms of health, social, everything else in the country, industry, mm-hmm. you know, we all know the issues that the Brexit's caused. You know, you've got to take that really bigger picture. But as it happened, it turned out that, generally speaking, we are worse off by some millions of pounds in the fishing industry because of Brexit. Yeah. Then you have to look at the inshore sector, which I represent, and if the Fisheries Act does what it says on the tin and there are no guarantees, then potentially, if nothing else, it's acting as a catalyst for this sort of regeneration, reinvigoration of coastal fishing, which is the only answer we have, the only option we have. And we can only say, yes, if it works, it works, and we'll be better off and we can eat more locally caught fish very final question what's your favorite way to eat fish oh gosh i've got a soft spot for sprats full of omega-3 and i've timed it it takes six minutes from from taking it out of the bag or box to putting it on your plate Mm. you know you take them out give them a wash roll them in flour stick them in the fryer wham on there are magnificent absolutely just, just nothing you know you eat the whole damn thing but at the end of the day, make sure it's cleaned out, stick some herbs and lemon and stuff in the gut cavity, wrap it in foil and bung it in the oven. There you go. You haven't got to fill it here, you haven't got to do anything to it. And when you take it out, the, the flesh falls off the bone. Yeah. Tasty, healthy. Oh, I'm hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, thank you so much for speaking to me and coming on The Full English. No, my pleasure. <laughs>